Hey, Green Future Growers. Welcome to Season 4. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer. I'm here to help you create, grow, and enjoy your own organic oasis. I hope you'll subscribe for free on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And let's get growing. I wish I would have had it on because my listeners would have liked to have heard all that. Let me tell you again then, because it was just two sentences. Okay. I, have a winter, I have a winter greenhouse. I, um, I live in the Pacific Northwest, and that means all winter long, even though we get a little bit of snow, not much, I can keep things going. So yesterday I was in there. I've got celery galore. Celery loves being in a cold winter greenhouse. Um, chard, beets, semi-hardy lettuces, you know, the Romanish kind of ones do better than the butterheads. Um, and what else have I got? Kale and chard and radishes and obviously I, herbs. I just pot the herbs up and keep, keep a few like thyme. We'll keep going through the winter. Mints won't, but uh, thyme. And, and then I've got the classic volunteers like um, um, chickweed. <laughs> and lamb's quarters and you know the ones that just kind of show up and they're part of the salad greens for winter tell me about your greenhouse like how big is it and like do you have to have fan like how do you ventilate because I started helping this woman with her um greenhouse last year and just there were so many questions we had we actually never we, it still it's, isn't it's, going it's um, 25 by 20 and it has, um, it's kind of a, a curved one. You know, it doesn't have square edges. It's got a curved edges. And we did have a problem with that when we put it in. We probably put it in like 10 years ago. Um, and we did have a problem with being able to control moisture and heat. So I don't use my greenhouse the way that normal people do. What I do is, first of all, all winter long, I leave everything closed up and then there'll be a day in spring, a random day in spring where I go, yeah, that's summer. And then I leave the doors on both ends wide open. And my neighbor tells me that that's not the way you use a greenhouse, but it seems to work well for me because I don't have um, problems with too much moisture. I have a, um, a shade cloth over the top of it and I leave that on all summer. Um, you know, this is, these are no tried and true ways for all people, but this is what works best for me. And I then think I that's have, a great way to talk about it because it will inspire people that they don't have to worry about getting it perfect and they can figure out what works for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. better each year. And, you know, one of the most important things was, and this is so related to today's talk, um, I had a problem with, you know, the doors are open on either side. Of course, I need pollinators to come in and out at free, you know, free will. And what happened was they would pollinate, they'd get the nectar, they'd get the, uh, the pollen, and then they'd go to fly away and they'd fly up. And well, up is where the roof is and they were getting stuck oh. in the greenhouse. And especially if you have a greenhouse that ha doesn't open up on the, on the front and the back sides all the way, you'll end up having butterflies and bees and beetles and everybody that's I totally had that problem in my itty bitty little greenhouse last year. Yeah, even a small one. So what I did was my beloved husband <laughs> um, drilled me some, he, he actually just cut out the pieces of plastic that were up at the top <clears throat> and 
uh, on either side. On the in in this case, it's a north side. My north sides and my south sides open out. So he went up to the peak of the roof there on the north side and the south side and just cut me out a piece. And I leave that out all summer. If the pollinators are out, I leave that out. I don't need to retain heat way up there. It actually provides good ventilation too. But the biggest thing was it solves my problem of capturing pollinators. I mean, you can't, you probably can guess how sad that made me to made me to come into the greenhouse and see them all knee, 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 trying to find a way out. And they always will go up rather than going along the ground and finding an opening at a doorway. No, I know. I was amazed at how I was able to move a lot of butterflies by hand, by like, you know, slipping like a piece of cardboard under them or a piece of newspaper. But at yeah. the same time, you know, there was still like I was always finding and the bees and just um, it was yeah. really hard to keep them from getting stuck in there. I actually went to the manufacturer of the greenhouse. I've forgotten which kind I have now, but I went to the manufacturer back then and said, this is a real problem. You know, if, if everybody is doing the same thing as me, growing all these plants that attract pollinators, which of course they are, then everybody's having problems with hundreds and perhaps thousands that get stuck and die in the heat of the, the peak of the uh, greenhouse. So, so what did yeah. they say? Um, they said, oh, no one's ever complained about it. But then I talked to my friends who have greenhouses and everyone says they have a problem with it. And you even knew what I was talking about. So I think we need to modify our greenhouses right at the peak of the roof and cut out a piece. My husband made it so that he can cut, uh, so the piece is cut out. And how did you make it so we fit it back in? Cut new ones, overlap. Oh, he cut new ones that overlap the opening. And, um, and we place them back in in the fall and pull them back out in the spring. Hmm. Ours, it was like in this one little corner. It wasn't actually in the top. It was like in this one, on the like south side in this one corner. Um, yeah, yeah. And then uh, somehow, like I thought I was like, could I put newspaper on the outside like to block it off? And, and I tried different things, but then they would just be like right on the edge of it. <laughs> just, you can see what I don't know. for us that, that, you know, there's, there's something wrong that needs to be fixed. And I'm so glad that you had that concern too. Um, one of the reasons why if it was bees trying to get out in one direction, there is a reason for that. So let's say you've got four directions, north, south, east, west, yet all your bees are stuck on the south corner, southwest corner. That's, that's because exactly that, where they were. Yep, that's because that's the direction their home is in. So they know they're full up, they've got enough nectar, they've got enough pollen, they're ready to go home, and they're going to go straight home. So they don't wander around. Um, other insects do wander around, but bees don't. They want to go in a straight line home. Mm, that's isn't interesting. It? Yeah, it is, isn't it? So what do you think about Susan? Where is she? I don't know. She sent me an email and asked me to send the invitation. And I sent the invitation. Because the only thing is, I have another interview starting at 11. Like ah, we that's just... okay. We got plenty to talk about. If she if she doesn't make it in here, um, I got plenty to say. <laughs> okay. So should I just introduce you and and we'll sure, and if she comes, we'll just uh okay. 
Welcome to the Green Organic Garden. It is Friday, March 11, 2022, and I have an amazing guest back on the line who has a new book out called What Bees Want, Beekeeping as Nature Intended. And um, we're just going to learn so much. Her first book, um, Song of Increase, Song of Increase was just, I, I loved it. She was a great guest back on our show when I first started. And I know you guys are going to love this today because it's going to teach you how you can raise bees. And we're going to talk about bees without having to worry about those toxic chemicals. People tell you, you have to spray on the mites. So here today, Jacqueline Freeman, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here again. I'm, I'm honored to be invited twice. Oh my gosh. I could talk to you every day. So why don't you, I do have a ton of new listeners since we last talked. So why don't you tell listeners a little bit about yourself, like where you're at in the Pacific Northwest and just, um, you know. I live in the Pacific Northwest in Southwest or um, Washington, right near the Oregon border. Um, I have uh, been an, a biodynamic, or obviously I'm an organic farmer, but also a biodynamic farmer as well. Uh, I've been doing this for, gosh, I think we bought our farm a little over 20 years ago and I've been doing the organics for 20 years and biodynamics I think I started about two years after that so way fun uh, we've got uh, we started with five acres we were on 10 acres for most of our time and uh, we um, have had all kinds of livestock uh, milking cows beef cows milking goats, turkeys, chickens, um, lay, layers, broilers, and, and a million honeybees. <laughs> we have orchards. Uh, we have probably about 40 bearing fruit trees. So we do a lot of orchard work. Um, we've got arbors with probably about a half a dozen or eight different kinds of grapes. Um, and a lot of native, native flowers as well. Uh, berries, we have berries that I do middling well some years and very well other years. Um, I think that's, that's probably about it. It keeps me busy. <laughs> I'll say, did you say how big your place was? Sorry. Say that again. Did you say how big it, like how, is it like an acre or... Um, well, we, we had 10 acres about two years ago. We sold five of our acres to, a, to some friends who are retiring. And we have friends who are right next door with a, we have a neighbor gate between our two pastures now. Awesome. <laughs> I love that. I love that too. So now I'm... we have five acres, which is an enormous amount of land when you're gardening, an enormous amount. There are still parts of our land that I just have done nothing to in 20 years because I haven't had the time. <laughs> I know we have 20 acres and even just gardening like we have 260 feet of fence around our house that has garden beds and then my husband has another like the mini farm and just keeping those two but then also like the rest of the land that's forest land just taking care of that is a huge you know undertaking there's always like my husband's always out there piling brush and you know um making sure the trees are you know healthy and and just taking care of the rest of the property so um, did I uh, tell you about tree, um, biodynamic tree paste? 
last time I was on? I honestly don't I remember. I don't think so. You just, because you just mentioned it and I, I just said about orchards, may I share with you what we do? <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like we should just back up a quick second in case some listeners don't know what biodynamic means. Maybe you want to just touch on that super quick. Sure, biodynamics is a, a kind of agriculture that was started by um, Rudolf Steiner about a hundred years ago. From and, the Waldorf School. Yeah, and it's really, um, I was so aligned with it when I discovered it, I, I went, oh my God, this is like coming home to a form of gardening that really thrills me, you know, makes my heart proud of being involved in, in agriculture in this way. What we do is rather than just trying to get better cucumbers, um, I, I garden for life force. So what that means to me is we have different methods that we use. We have different preparations like compost preparations that we put on the plants for what we're doing is building life force. So I'm not concerned with volume. I'm not concerned with looks. I'm concerned with how can I make this plant the healthiest I can possibly do it. And of course, you know, the secret is in the soil. The better your soil is, the better everything is going to come up. But I pay attention to it. And there are some concepts included in that that really make sense to me. One of them is um, paying attention to beauty. And so at first I used to think everything had to be functional, you know, who's it gonna feed? But I've come to realize the importance of having beauty around you too. And my concept of beauty is a little different. You know, if you're encouraging pollinators and I include all kinds of pollinators in that, beetles and butterflies, as well as bees. If you're encouraging more pollinators, then the places where the pollinators are growing up, um, <laughs> that those look kind of messy. And that's the, that's the lifestyle of them. So um, what we do, so anyway, gardening for life force is really what my intention is and everything is interconnected so when we had the cow we were milking we were hand milking our cow and we had plenty of milk for making cheese and yogurt and feta and things like that but also the excess of the milk would go to the chickens and the chickens would poop and the cows would poop and that goes in my manure piles and um, nourishes my orchards and my gardens and everything is overlapped. It's kind of a, a bit like permaculture that way, that everything overlaps and has at least five different functions in, in what we're doing with it. So with biodynamics, one of the things, let me tell you about my orchard. When I first started, uh, when we first got here to our farm, we're the second owners, it's a hundred year old farm. And we had some really old apple trees that were pretty much, they had, if, if it was a disease, they had it. I could think of at least four different diseases they had at once. As a matter of fact, some of these trees that were probably close to a hundred years old, they were so misshapen and wormy and everything. I couldn't even get the apples identified to tell what kind they were. I didn't know what their natural shape or color was because they were just so covered with pests and diseases. So um, I was just at the beginning of my biodynamic start 
And I had invited a friend, um, Mark Trella from the Midwest to come out and teach a class in biodynamics here so more of my friends could get exposed to it too. And I remember this so well, it was, it was March. So, and you and I are talking right here in March. And he asked me if I had any orchard trees that were having a difficult time. Oh, indeed I did. And he said, great, well, let's make up some biodynamic tree paste. And the, bio, the recipe for biodynamic tree paste is cow, fresh cow manure, kind of nice and wet, um, sand, clay, and, and uh, water. It's a really simple recipe and it's equal parts of each and enough water to make it kind of like a, something that you could press onto the tree. So you stir that up, mix everything in together. And then we went down to each of our apple trees and took handfuls of it and smeared it all over the, the trunk of the tree, all the way up to the first branches from the ground. And what this does is, first of all, you have some insects that are in the trees in the fall. They fall with the fruit down to the ground, they burrow into the ground, they overwinter. And then in the spring, they march right back up the tree up to the fruit. Um, you have other ones that do an air uh, that are, um, what else? I'm trying to think of which other. Anyway, what happens is, oh, I, and the other one is um, that the, the insects are in the trunk of the tree and the bark itself wintering over. So when you, you take this clayish manure sand combination and you smear it thick enough to cover all of the trunk, and then you leave it and it, it turns hard over the next few days, like a carapace. And, um, <clears throat> and what it does is it traps the insects that are in the bark, they can't get out because they're mushed in and the, and the clay turns hard. So that stops them. And the ones that are down on the ground, they go to climb the tree and all of a sudden you've got this kind of smoothish kind of tree and those little insects that are climbing back up to eat your apples and pears and peaches, what they're doing is they're getting partway up the tree and going, hey, wait a minute, this isn't an apple tree. This is completely different. So they, they only climb fruit trees and it doesn't feel or smell or taste like a fruit tree anymore because it's got the tree paste on it. Also, the manure like, like in a good compost is nourishing through the roots and through the bark, and it's kind of like you're giving it access to an extra vitamin charge. And that's um, strengthening the, the tree itself. So any other insect or damage that comes is deterred because the tree is stronger and it's less likely to take an attack. Now, I do have to tell you that when we were, we have a lot of rain in the, in the spring, winter, late winter and spring, and when we were doing this, I was thinking, yeah, yeah, we're going to smear this tree paste on the, on the bark of the tree. It's going to be gone by Tuesday. We have rain here. <laughs> but miraculously, it didn't. It, it wintered over. It summered, spring, summer, and fall and wintered over. Um, and it still was on there two years later. And so we do it about every two years. Now, I will tell you that those apple trees in the fall, that first year, they looked somewhat better, but they didn't look great. But they looked, there was obvious improvement. So I thought, well, that's great. We'll see what happens 
Um, and I figured that was about as good as it gets. The second year following, these terribly misshapen fruit, I mean, they were just awful before we did the tree paste. They were like something you would buy in a fancy store. There was not a blemish on them. It was amazing. It was a remarkable miracle. So we do that on all the trees now. We don't do it every year. I'll be honest with you. I probably get there, uh, get around to it every third year. I try to do about 10 or a dozen each year. And sometimes I get to them all, sometimes I don't, but it's increased the, the clarity of the apples and pears and peaches and everything. Isn't that amazing? That's awesome. And like, I kept wondering when you were going to say you were supposed to wash it off. So no. that's interesting that you just leave it on there and it doesn't hurt. The, it helps it the tree. Yeah. And two years later, you'll still see quite a bit of it on. By the third year, it starts, you know, I, I think it's good to do it every other year. But the tree also is nourished by it. So it gets stronger. And, you know, anything, any plant, any kind of plant that's stronger is less likely to get um, insect or pest damage or even viruses and things like that. It fights them off. Well, this is awesome. I bet listeners are going to love this. I know we're going to try it because we have our trees are just really, our orchard is just struggling and not only on top of like pests and diseases from the weather and different things. We had a grizzly bear go through and broke a bunch of branches the last two summers in a row. And just, they're really, <laughs> last year we didn't hardly get any apples out of any of our trees. It was just- Yeah, um, you're gonna love this. Talk to me in two years. <laughs> okay. And this is the time. This is the time of year that you do this. This would be January, February, and, and into March. But you don't you want to get it before this too much of the blossom. Um, um like, and does it have to be cow manure? Like, could you use because Mike just saw a thing for horse manure for free in a Facebook group the other day? Cow manure is best. Okay. Um because it, it's got it, well, I don't actually technically know why it's best, but that's what I've always been told is coke is that the cow manure is the best. And you can use cow and sheep, uh, excuse me, you can use horse and sheep and llama and goat. And, you know, we had some of those animals and you can use that. It, it's not as good, but it works. So if you had nothing but horse manure, sure, I would use horse manure. But if you have okay. access to it, and you know, a cow will, will give 80 pounds of manure a day. So if you know anybody who's got a cow, <laughs> they got 80 pounds a day coming out of that cow. Maybe we should get a cow just for the manure. <laughs> I've been thinking I want to get a cow. I'm almost ready to commit oh. to milking a cow every day. You do. You're starting just like I did. I, I had never thought of getting a cow. Never considered it. Never crossed my mind. <clears throat> and then I started dreaming about cows. <laughs> dreaming in the night about cows. And I finally mentioned it to my husband. And he said, well, I guess it's time for us to get a cow then. And I loved having cows on the land. For one thing, our compost was just the best it could possibly be. It was ideal. And, and we started fertilizing our pastures uh, with the cow manure, spreading it 
um, once we composted it, spread it, and the cows, of course, were doing their part right on the land itself. But what a difference. When we first moved here, there were no, our, our soil was very clayish, and there were very little life in the soil itself. Um, you know, you could dig a hole and not come across one, one single worm. And after we did a few years of that, um, it made such a world of difference. You take a shovel full and it's, it's teeming worms everywhere. And we've got those little bugs, um, um, dung beetles, that's what it is, the dung beetles. And their job on the land is to take a little piece of manure, roll it into a ball, because that's how he attracts his mate. She finds the little ball of manure that he rolls around quite intriguing. And he takes that little ball of manure and takes it away from the manure pile and deposits it somewhere else. So he's actually that little bug, the dung beetle is doing their share to keep your fertile pasture um, healthy and active. <laughs> Jacqueline, you're the only one I know that could possibly like make dung beetles sound like fun and attractive. So <laughs> do you want to tell us about your new book? Yes. Our new book is called What Bees Want, Beekeeping as Nature Intended. And I wrote this with my dear friend, Susan Nylands. Um, I've been keeping bees for about 20 years. Susan started taking my classes about 10 years ago and was my most avid student. And the book is written sort of as a memoir and a how-to guide at the same time. And it, it's uh, talking about Susan's journey about how she learned how to you put into practice the, the steps that I was doing. And um, it's really quite an interesting book. And we've also got some research chapters by uh, Torben Schiffer and Tom, Dr. Tom Seeley, who's probably the best known person for uh, entomology and bees. And so it's, it's actually my first book, Song of Increase, Listening to the Wisdom of Honeybees for Kinder Beekeeping in a Better World was kind of a why do we need to have different kinds of practices around bees that are more respectful? And this book is like the how-to guide to do it yourself. So if you want to know what's, a, what's the way to treat bees most respectfully um, and how can you make your land a real haven for them, it has things like, you know, how do you um, deal with the shape of the hive and we have different suggestions for that and how do you make it more insulated how do you make it so that they don't have to work so hard to keep warm in the winter or cool in the summer um, planting for bees planting for bees it's right up your alley <laughs> um, the different forage crops and how they really may maximize the amount of pollen and nectar for bees um, so And uh, oh, I, one of the other things about making a water garden for bees is a really important one too. You know, that's something I could talk about that right now because I think water gardens are one of my cool, my just pet projects. I probably have about a half a dozen of them. This is a place, you know, all your all your bugs, and I'm so fond of bugs. <laughs> all your bugs need to have water, so we put up little pools here and there. Some of them are small and, you know, three feet across and a concrete bottom and 
you know, water lilies and water irises in there. That would be an example of one. Another one would be you can get, uh, you can go to Lowe's or Home Depot or one of the hardware stores and get like a sunken pool and dig it in. This gives you permission to make as many water holes as you want. <laughs> I saw those at Home Depot and Lowe's last year. I was like, oh my gosh, look at this. They have like kits of all different sizes and shapes and I almost There's like, I was like, I should just bring this home right now. But I wanted to ask my husband what he wanted. Yes, you're right. You're right. You should. And they're easy. They can be like a foot and a half across. You know, you just dig a hole like you're planting a tree for that one like that. It's, it's the same size. And you can put your container down in it and then just put a fountain in it and make sure that it's always got water in it. Um, and you can do the half tank barrels. Um, you know, the, the whiskey barrels that are cut in half, you can fill yeah. it and put a little fountain. The fountain keeps the water moving, which is better for it. So it doesn't get scummy. Um, and uh, we just, we've, we, it, you can even have just a little bird bath that you can transition over from a bird bath to a bug bath. Uh, when bees or anybody is trying to find a way to get to the water, they can't really safely land. So you don't want to have just a bowl of water because they can, they can get down to it, but they can't get back out of it easily. So if you were going to put a bird bath out, for example, put sand on the bottom of it and then put your water in because the sand, they can walk down the beach to the edge of the where the water is and easily drink safely, drink their water. Oh, that's what we should have tried last year. We have like, um, cause we have like a spigot out by where we, uh, right outside the front door. And I, we put like a bucket and we put a bunch of rocks. I was amazed at how they would like stand like little soldiers, like in a row on like the edge of the rocks, but they still kept like drowning. And, and we should finally, we ended yeah. up like giving that away or, you know, doing away with that and doing something else. But that would have been better if we would have put some sand in there. Yes, that's the solution to it. Um, we have one of ours is a concrete pond. And that's great because it, the concrete actually has little fissures all along, you know, it's, it's not a smooth surface. So the bees can walk down the edge right to the edge of it, but they could still be an inch above the water line and they can access the water that gets in the cracks. Of it's the amazing how little bit of water they really need, but how do you want to talk about like why it's so important? Do you have all these water sources for them? Oh yeah. If you have bees and I can talk as both someone who has bees and also, you know, a neighbor who doesn't have bees, but wants to help the bees. It, you put um, a bird bath out or something like that and put it in the shade because it will evaporate too quickly if you have it out in the sun. Yeah. Um, uh, when you do that, you're providing water for everybody and you, you will be amazed at the variety. You know, we have dragonflies that come in that are just exquisite and butterflies that uncoil their tongue and take big sips of water. And, and did you know that dragonflies eat mosquitoes? Yes. And I didn't know that till just the past few years. I they just learned that last summer. They eat their weight in them. <laughs> That's a lot of mosquitoes. And how many different types of dragonflies there are? Like there's these itty bitty teeny tiny ones and medium sized ones like I read Jessica Wallister's book about, um, you know, inviting beneficial insects. And I just like, I have a whole newfound 
um, like just, I can't believe how many insects I see when I go out in the garden that have always been there that I just never noticed before and yes. how much I love them. And then when I would like sit and read and I would bring like the little Tupperware thing down of um, like a snack or something, the bees would love to just come and sit on the lid from the Tupperware. I would put like a little bit of tiny water in there. And every night while I was reading, they would come and sit on that Tupperware lid because it was just so tiny and they could land on that. Yeah. It's amazing how my how many like insects and, and bees and things and how little bit of water makes such a difference. It it really does. Like little things like that will make a huge difference in the flowers that you see in your garden. Oh, yes. And I use the watering places. So my biggest watering station is a stock tank that we had for our cows. And then we changed our pasture around and didn't need it anymore. It's a stock tank that's about eight feet across and about three feet deep. So we put all kinds of plant water plants in it so the bees can land on like the stem of a of an iris and walk down on it to the edge of the water where the stem meets mm -hmm. the water. Do you put fish in it at all? Yes, we do. We do. Um, we just put little goldfish in, feeder goldfish, and they, they, they actually will live and get bigger. And we've had some in there for a few years now. They're supposed to be feeder goldfish, which means you feed them to a bigger fish. Um, but, and they're not bred for longevity, but we've got some in there that are a number of years old, do, still doing well. Um, one of the things I use my watering stations for, and this is going to sound a little funny, but I think the role of beauty on a, on a farmer in a garden is really, really important. And sometimes we grow a lot of things, but we don't stop and take a look at you know, what is, what, how can I bring more beauty into this area? And I'm sure some of your flower gardeners are going to go, oh, I got that one knocked. <laughs> but I grow a lot of fruits and vegetables and, you know, I, I don't, some, I wasn't paying as much attention to it. And then I started doing little things like, okay, here's a watering station and I, it'd be lilac season and I'd pick a lilac branch and put it in there too. So it just looked so beautiful with um, sometimes I'd put stones in there and I might even put crystals in it. So it would have a lilac bloom and a big quartz crystal next to it and some sand so they could walk down. And they just became like living objects of beauty spread all over the farm. And every time I'd walk by and go, oh, that does look so gorgeous. And it just makes me happy. I bet listeners are smiling while they're listening to this like I am. And it's so true, like those little things that just make such a big difference in your garden, yeah. I think. Yeah, they do. Um, Making the gardener happy is a really big role. That's a big purpose. <laughs> I think for a lot of us who garden, you know, uh, who have gardens that have any size to them, like if you've got two, two planting beds, you've got a lot. You know, I mean, how often do we go through the season and we go, oh man, I've still got to get the, the netting up for the peas to climb and I haven't done this yet and I haven't done that. And I noticed in my early years, I often felt stressed about how much I had to do and how much I wasn't getting done. And even when we had farm interns here helping, there was still so much to do. And then I just flipped it around and said, enjoy what's here be with what's here and let yourself see what makes you happy about this process. I kind of gave myself a good talking to. 
And when I started doing that, it, it freed me up. It's like, so what if I didn't get everything planted? I got as much planted as I got planted. So let's go from there. And, and I started looking to see not what things had not gotten done. Oh, that big pile that I was going to move over to the compost and I haven't gotten to it yet. I just started going, that's where that pile is going to live this year. <laughs> and that's fine. Everything will be fine. It'll be, you know, what is the purpose of this to make me feel stressed or to make me feel happy? I think these are perfect lessons because I don't think we give ourselves enough grace. And after two years of living in a pandemic type of world, I think yeah. you know, people, especially like there's been such an increase in the interest in gardening and people are like, you know, struggled with new gardens and trying to figure things out and, but also like learned a ton and, and like a joy of gardening. I don't think there's ever been um, as big of an interest in, in growing food and, and spending time outdoors with your kids in a, a natural environment. And so um, do you want to talk about like, maybe like, you know, how probably a lot of people are still worried about like getting stung by bees and like how they don't have to worry about that. And also like how they, you know, there's that whole like mite thing that people are worried about. Well, let me talk about the mites first, because okay. this is for awesome. people who are doing beekeeping too. This is one of the things that we really um, are, are promoting in, in our style of beekeeping, which is called preservation style beekeeping, where we want to provide havens and help the bees survive better and healthier. When bees started getting mites um, that are a, a foreign born, um, uh, it's, a, it's an insect kind of from the spider family and it attacks bees and their eggs and saps them and it lives on um, live bees too and it saps their strength. It's like having a blood sucker attached to you all the time and bees can get, you know, they can have 10 of them on them at the same time and those bees weaken and die. So what we started looking at year, many years ago was like, how do we, if we're following the same principle that we do with gardening, you know, how do you make everything healthier? Um, look at what happens naturally with good soil and, and make an adaptation to it. So we, had, this was kind of running current with things I was learning from the bees about the bees. Um, the healthier you make anything, the more it, resistance to disease it has. So my bees and Susan's bees too, tend to be very free, pretty much free from disease because we encourage them to live as nature intended, the way that bees live in the wild. So for example, um, in the wild, bees live in trees. That's a good example of it. It's a, a rounded um, enclosure somewhere in a, you know, a, a, up in the tree in the trunk itself. Um, and if there's pests in there that are attacking the bees, there's no, there's no place for them to hide in a round surface. Whereas in a square box, like beekeepers normally keep, there's lots of corners that insects can get, that pests can get into and hide. And, um, you know, when you put them into a, a rounder hive, then it, it's more conducive to living a normal life. Um, insulation is the same thing. 
in a tree. They have about three or four inches of trunk around them, keeping them at a, at a common temperature so that they can stay warm in winter and cool in summer. And we keep them in, a, in conventional beekeeping, keeps them in a square box that's about, ah, I think it's not even a half inch thick. And when you find winter comes along, the bees are busy either going slightly dormant in, into a, a semi-torpor, it's called. Uh, that torpor is a, a process of going to sleep and waking up and going to sleep and waking up and having to warm up the hive and it, it keeps them from doing their native tasks that they would do on their own. Um, when the way that I keep bees now, so I've got a number of different kinds of hives. Uh, some of them are like skeps, and this is what Susan is particularly good at. She weaves her own skeps. Do you know what a skep is? I do not. Well, it's, it's grass cut into sheaves and coiled and made into a, you know, like the Winnie the Pooh hive? <laughs> sure. That's sure. a skep. And it's very, very well insulated so the bees can regulate their temperature on their own, which they can't do in those little thin walled square boxes. And uh, it allows them to keep invaders out. It, uh, it provides, uh, they can paint the whole interior with propolis, which is a, a scent laden um, substance that they make from sap of trees that helps keep them healthy. Uh, all kinds of things like that. So I encourage people to have, and there's so many different kinds. We look to, to Europe uh, where they've been keeping bees in things like skeps and all kinds of different shaped boxes um, modified from box shapes to round shapes and take a look at what the, what the beekeepers in, in antiquity used to do. How, how did they keep bees hundreds of years ago? And was that working out for them? Yes, it is. Their bees are strong. That's and, what I was wondering. Where do you find one? How do you spell skep? Is it S-K-E-P-T or? S-K-E-P. And oh. there's a whole tradition of them all across England, uh, excuse me, all across Europe. Um, and, it's just remarkable. And for that, I, I wish I could hold up the book and show you pictures, but <laughs> uh, they're in the book talking about different kinds of hives and how you can get them and how you can start to do them. So one of the things that people ask, one of the things that we're trying to get people to stop doing is importing bees. So the typical way that a beekeeper would do this is say, oh, it's spring, I'd like some new bees and I'm gonna go order them from somewhere far, far away where the weather conditions are nothing like where I live and they'll be shipped through the mail and <laughs> they'll come and live here. And you know, like I might buy bees that were raised in Georgia where it's hot and dry and has a drought going on. And then I bring them up to the Northwest where it's wet and damp and we have winter. And Or us in Montana who get our bees from Northwest Washington. <laughs> yeah, the land of rain and you bring them out to the land of air and dryness and, uh, so, and, and also when you ship bees all over the world like that, you're transporting the diseases that they have with them. They bring them with them. And you can also, if you're buying bees, there's a, uh, 
common habit that people have of buying bees from areas that are that warm up a little bit quicker than we do so you can get a better, better start on your bee season. But I don't think that's a good idea because if you're buying bees from the South, I had a, one of my girlfriends said she ordered bees. She was in a hurry. She knows what we're talking about here, but she didn't have time. So she ordered bees from down South. Well, she got bees that came from somewhere down South and they were the crankiest bees ever. They stung everybody who got anywhere near them. And I said, you know, I hate to say this, but I think you've got some bees that they got some of the killer bee stuff in them. You know, they're they're hot to trot. They're really. Oh my! Um, you know, and she said, "Well, do you want them?" I was like, "No way." Here, <laughs> 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 would you like a hive of really stingy, bad-tempered bees? No, ours are all kind and pleasant to be around. And you know, I don't have to wear bee equipment around there, like a hazmat suit, to be around my bees. It's just a time to be really kind and friendly and it goes both ways. I treat them nicely and they treat me nicely. And let me get back to your question you had about stinging. You know, bees, if they don't have anything to protect, they don't tend to sting, you know? And, and um, I don't wear equipment around my bees. I would wear equipment if I was going to have to do something like, let's say the wind came through my yard and knocked a hive over which would be very upsetting and disorienting to the bees. In that case, if I had to go straighten their hive out again and get them back on their feet, I would probably wear a, a bee suit then because they would be upset at what the heck happened here. Uh, short of that, short of something like that, that's a particularly dramatic situation. All the rest of the time, my bees are really sweet tempered and kind and easy to be around. If I was tearing apart their hive, I think like a bear would do, it would be different, but I don't do that. So we have a different kind of relationship. And when people worry about that, that's, that's what I tell them. You know, when you first get your bees, wear the hazmat suit, go sit next to them. Notice how much they pay attention to you. Probably not a bit, hardly a bit. And eventually the bee suits can, can come off because you realize that they're, they're very kind-tempered little bees. So we only have like five minutes left. Like what else do you want to tell us about your book that listeners probably want to learn? And where well, do they get your book? Is it out yet? It's not out yet, right? Oh, yes, it out. It came out in February. Oh, and okay. February 2022. Um, so it's been out just a matter of a few weeks and we've already gotten inquiries from two other countries asking if they can translate it. So we can tell it's awesome. rocking. And it did really, really well on um, sales. I, it just kind of a fun thing for us. <laughs> when it first came out, it was like, wham, we did really well. Aww, uh, anyway, congratulations. Thank you. The, bees, the book is called What Bees Want, Beekeeping as Nature Intended. And you can find it, any, any bookseller can order it for you. Uh, we like to encourage people to support small bookstores. So, um, but you can still buy it at Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all of those places. And uh, it's kind of like, we'll hold your hand while we walk you into this new way of keeping and being with bees. And I think most readers are going to really enjoy having this kind of a relationship, more of an intimate and kind relationship that's less like factory farming bees and more like, 
yeah, having a relationship with them that's meaningful and rewarding and friendly. So how do you get your honey then? How do I? That's a great question because we don't harvest the honey, but there will be, there will always be hives that fail for one reason or another. So every once in a while, I have a hive that doesn't make it for some reason. And that's when I harvest the honey from a hive that dies. There's enough there that it lasts me a good long time. I also don't use it indiscriminately. Um, I used to, you know, use honey all the time, but now I look at it more like, what a special thing this is. What a special food. It's got nutrients in it. It's got lots of love in it. It's got kindness in it, in the way that we interact together. And I, I eat less honey, but I eat it with more consciousness when I do eat it. Like, I really do say thank you for this gift. Uh, well, thank you so much for sharing with us today. And, and I hope listeners will get your book and leave a five-star review on Amazon, even if you get it at a different bookstore, you can still um, put a review up there because that will help other people find it and learn all this important information. If you haven't already listened to episode 121 that I did with Jacqueline back on March 12, 2016, um, maybe I'll do a replay so it'll just come out when I play this one so you can hear it. But um, that was a great interview where we talked a lot more about your first book, The Song of Increase, and um, and just like uh, like one of the things that I always remember is you talking about how important it is to get cow manure from cows that aren't eating um, oh. weed-free hay. And just like we talked about your experience with that, and I know other people have had that experience so many times, and so... Um, that was just one of the best interviews we did. I just love everything that you've got going. And so um, unfortunately, I have another interview that's just about to start. So tell oh. listeners like your website, like do you have a website? Are you on social media? Thank like you. where can they learn more about you? Thank you. I love working with you too. This is so much fun. My website is called spiritbee.com. And also we have one for the book itself with the 12 tenets of beekeeping on it that anyone can pull up and read. And that's on whatbeeswant.com. So thank you for inviting me again. I'm, I'm so grateful to you for getting this information out into the world. Thank you so much for sharing with us again, Jacqueline, and you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening. And remember, grow local.